And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. No one knows Washington better than Chris Dodd, the son of a United States senator, himself a congressman and senator, a real institution in the, in the Senate in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s, uh, the author of the Dodd-Frank bill, the guy who helped shepherd the Affordable Care Act through Congress. Chris Dodd was there for a lot of historic moments, playing a leadership role. And I wanted to sit down with him and ask him about where he thinks we are today uh, with the perspective of a former member who has great reverence for the institution. Here's that conversation. Chris Dodd, great to, great to be with you again. David, uh, good, good to be with you. We, we, go, we go back a ways. We so. do go back a ways. Best campaign I ever had run was the campaign you led the effort on. <laughs> hey, you say that to all the consultants. I did say it to a lot of girls. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I'm so, I was so eager to sit down with you, mm. uh, in part because uh, your family has such a rich political history, and your mm. political history goes back. But let's talk about the Dodds for I mean, but sure. all your grandparents came over from Ireland. True. Yep. I'm fifth generation, all Irish. My sister married a wonderful Italian-American. She finally was expanding the gene pool, we said, in the family. <laughs> but uh, very proud of our Irish heritage. And 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 um, they came over for the traditional reasons? They the famine years, most of them, uh, 1840s, stonemasons. Uh, I had a couple of great-great-great-great-grandparents who couldn't read or write, um, they were 15 and 16 years of age, had nine children. My grandfather, great-grandfather, was the number ninth. But that wonderful woman, she couldn't read or write, but she got herself elected to the school board in oh, the little right? village in uh, Connecticut. And um, So really is in the genes. Well, she understood the value, as a lot of those immigrants did. One of the reasons they came was better opportunities. And, and her grandchildren, my mother, uh, majored in Latin Greek in college. And so in the space of a generation and a half, despite coming and couldn't read or write their own names, uh, set up and teed up the ball pretty much for pretty quickly for the next two generations going forward. Yeah, it's a it's an instructive story as we mm. talk about immigration yeah. Yeah. Uh, because uh, we are in fact a nation of immigrants. You bet. Some of the best Americans, facetiously, and I'm saying this now as a joke, but I used to teasingly say that after five generations, we ought to require that people leave uh, <laughs> uh, because the ones who've just been here, just arrived, seem to understand this great place called America and the opportunities it provides. How many great stories we've heard about people who gotten in here, just arrived, and turned their lives around, make huge contributions to the country. Yeah. And how many times have we talked to people who've been here for generations and seem to appreciate the country less. And yet, uh, this nativism has been a pretty powerful political yeah. force. And it has been episodically in American history. But the president, now as we sit here today and we have this discussion, uh, we're, we're together on the day before the midterm elections, right, and this right. will be heard after. But there's no doubt that he's tapped a vein uh, on this immigration issue. Well, fear is always a, 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 in the short term, fear will win. I mean, unfortunately, that's the case. I'm not predicting mm -hmm. in this election that'll be the case, but it's an easier emotion to arouse. Uh, the easiest emotion, historically, this is not just unique to us, obviously, going back in time. It's uh, someone once said it's, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, any jackass can kick the barn door down. It takes an architect to build one. Yeah. Uh, and so Sam the, Rayburn, I think. Was it Sam Rayburn who I said that? So. Up, so, yeah. And so uh, appealing to people's, you know, worst instincts, particularly when, when they have legitimate complaints. I mean, I, a, a substantial part of the crowd out there that's showing up in these rallies are not bad people. And they've gone through a lot. Uh, their jobs and so forth have disappeared, automation, technology primarily. Uh, their children are coming back home or not getting the work. Less than 50% today of people growing up in the United States think that their children will not be as well off as they are. Give you an idea, in 1940, it was 90% people thought their children would be better off than they were. So I'm not suggesting they're, they're right in all of this, but I understand it mm -hmm. uh, to some degree. And when you come along in political leadership, appeals to people's anxieties and frustrations and fears, then it can work, at least in the short term. I don't believe it has any currency in the longer term at all. But in moments like this, it can have a certain amount of appeal, which is dangerous. 
let, let's talk about your dad, mm-hmm. uh, who had an extraordinary career, and he had an extraordinary career before he ever got to politics. Yeah. Uh, tell me about him. Well, he uh, uh, grew up in a uh, family that lost a lot. His father lost everything. My, my grandmother, his mother, my father's mother, died at a very young age. Uh, my father was really raised primarily by three sisters. Uh, not an uncommon story that many people have. And uh, got himself through college and uh, was the nighttime telephone operator at Yale Law School and uh, graduated in 1933. Very excited. New deal came down. FBI, Justice Department. Um, Prosecuted some civil rights cases. Civil rights cases. Me and my mother were escorted out of the state of Arkansas, having won a case there in the 1930s, late 1930s. Some labor cases in South Carolina. And at age 37, he was tapped to come over, go over to Nuremberg and... uh, uh, along with Justice Jackson, uh, just initially as an interrogator. But by the fall of 1945, he had become the executive trial counsel under Robert Jackson. Uh, and for Supreme the next 15 Court months, Justice, Supreme yeah. Court Justice. And uh, for the next 15 months, they prosecuted the initial 21 defendants at Nuremberg, uh, along with the Allied powers. Really the top ranks of, uh, of, of the Third Reich? Oh, the very top. And, and uh, it, was a difficult, it was difficult here. There were people who were highly critical of the trial in the United States. Um, the British under Churchill just thought we should ought to line them up and shoot them all. Why would you give these thugs a trial? The Russians were more liberal. Uh, they thought we ought to give them a week-long trial and then shoot them all. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the French were sort of ambivalent about the whole thing. But the United States, to its great credit, in beginning with Franklin Roosevelt, of course, who died in April of 1945, and then Harry Truman following him, and a few other people uh, uh, around uh, President Truman and President Roosevelt believed that this was a nation of rule of laws, and we would need to establish that principle. I, I grew up learning a lot of what happened at Nuremberg, one of which was part of the opening lines of Justice Jackson, that four great nations, stung with injury and flushed with victory, stayed the hand of vengeance by voluntarily submitting their captive enemies to the judgment of the rule of law, the greatest tribute that power ever paid to reason. Uh, and there were words like that that came out of Nuremberg, gave us a lot of the moral authority as a country for things like the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, and so forth. Nuremberg had a great value. Aside from being the right thing to do under the rule of law, it gave us a legitimacy and a moral authority, which uh, 70 years have, has served us very, very well. Well, as you know, though, this is another area of, of contention. Yeah. President uh, views these institutions as uh, illegitimate and as uh, incursions on our, our sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, and is withdrawing from, uh, or at least, well, some of them, certainly the International Criminal yeah. Court and so on. But uh, w- what's your sense as you watch that? Well, again, I don't think we ought to be so uh, so rigid that we're unwilling to look at how can we make these institutions work better? Are they serving our interests well? Do they be modified in some ways? Sometimes we appeal, appear to be opposed to any kind of thoughtful approach or different mm-hmm. approach the case. So I, I don't reject that idea at all. What I do reject the idea is that we take unilateral decisions to move away uh, because we don't believe they serve our interests. And I would argue that the last 70 plus years, uh, the United States has been successful for many reasons, not the least of which is because we built those international relationships. We had partners. It wasn't just us. <laughs> In many instances, both economically, politically, militarily, the fact that we had relationships uh, that had become deepened as a result of those institutions served our nation tremendously well. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's uh, the core question yeah. because, you know, you can say America first, but America's interests have been well served by these institutions and a, and a global order that has yeah. prevented a World War Absolutely. III and, yeah. and, and reduced the threat of conflict. And, and every American president, regardless of party and ideology, have embraced those views without exception, uh, some more aggressively than others, but no one has w- suggested we walk away uh, and that there's a choice between globalization and nationalism. Of course we want to have our country comes first. Every country ought to think that way. That does not mean you reject the idea of building global relationships to serve your interests, if for no other reason than selfish reasons. What greater way to be strong about defending ourselves than having partners and friends who will stand with us in critical moments? Yeah, I mean, it's been pointed out ad nauseum, but uh, the only time that Article 5 in the NATO treaty has been invoked has been in defense of the United States after we were attacked in 9-11. So your dad, uh, 
uh, came back, and in 1952 he ran for Congress yeah. from Connecticut. Uh, only one of I think one of, the only Democrat elected that year from the congressional under the, in the Eisenhower yeah. landslide. So yeah. And then in uh, in uh, 1956. He tried his luck again, and he challenged uh, Prescott Bush, who was the grandfather right. and of George W. Bush and, and father, father of yeah. George H. W. Right. Bush. Uh, actually, a good guy. I mean, he was oh, yeah. uh, known for taking on Joe McCarthy, and yep. uh, and your dad lost. Lost to him in '56, and then was elected in 1958. So politics together. was like in your home. Uh, well, from the time I was early on, yeah. In fact, even at Nuremberg, uh, my father was at Nuremberg, there was an effort to try and recruit him to run for governor of Connecticut uh, uh, in 1940. I guess it would have been 1946, uh, 40, maybe 48. Um, and I know he toyed with the idea of doing that, but in 52, decided to run. In 56, uh, lost. Uh, 58, won. And then had a great relationship with Prescott Bush uh, as they served together for about four or five years until uh, Prescott Bush left the Senate in 1962. But, but, but I guess what I'm asking you is, um, what, how did you, as you were the youngest of five? <clears throat> I'm, I'm the second youngest second of six. Year. Okay, yeah. all right. I, got bo- I, got I said we were Irish. Both Catholics, facts wrong, but, <laughs> but the gist of it is yeah. there. But how deeply involved were you in these campaigns, and how much did yeah. that permeate your home? You must have moved down here, right, to Washington at some point. Only in, uh, in 1959, after mm-hmm. the 58 election. And, um, but in the House years, my father, he would come down and do his work. In those days, it was a much easier schedule in many ways. A member showed up on Tuesday or Thursday. There was a limited, by June, they were pretty much gone with some exceptions. So it was not the kind of uh, growth of business and, and um and requirement you be here almost on a full-time basis that came later. But and so did, where, did you go around with them? Did you a little campaign bit, with them? Yeah, not much, but my, the, my parents were pretty good about this. I mean, I, uh, they, they didn't use this as political tools in a sense, as some do today. And, and so very much aware of it. I remember my father bringing me into, his, into my parents' bedroom the day before the election in 1956 and told me he was going to lose. But it was fine. They'd run a good campaign and life would move on. A little stunning to hear your father announce he's going to lose something. Uh, and we did. We finally moved on, and two years later, he ran and, and won won the race. But we so it didn't hurt you as a as a uh, as a kid to no. see your dad go down. No, not at all. I remember you know going to school the next day and everything was fine. I mean, just and that was I think avoiding us, making us feel like we were sort of deeply involved in the issues. And I'm one of six children, as you mentioned. I'm the only one that's ever run for public office in my family. Uh, I, my oldest brother, Tom, is a professor and has been for 50 years at Georgetown. My sister, Carolyn, who's been blind from birth, revived the Montessori system of teaching, the American Montessori, taught Montessori schools, inner city. Early we should point out that you were, you were quite the champion for, uh, for the blind yeah, when you were in Yeah, largely because comments. of my sister and what she went through and what a difference my mother made, particularly in her life. And, and so my siblings have all had very good and strong and healthy lives but, and are interested in public policy, are interested in politics. But I'm the only one that uh, made a decision to, to jump in. Uh, your dad was there, obviously, through, uh, you know, really momentous times, uh, all the big votes on Medicare and civil rights. Yeah. He was a champion on— He was uh, one of the floor leaders on the civil rights bills. Um, Hubert Humphrey was the leader of the Democratic side and Dirksen the other, but there were a handful of people who were actually floor leaders, took great pride in the fact he was involved in that. He also, uh, almost like Johnson himself, he became very defined in, uh, for, his opposi- for his support of the Vietnam War. Mm, he, was a, he was a strong, strongly anti-communist. Yep. Um, and they were guns and butter Democrats. They were, he was a Franklin Roosevelt Democrat, and, they, and, 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 and a product of the World War II generation to some extent. Um, but, but you're absolutely correct. He was a strong supporter. He believed we were doing the right thing. He was immortalized in a song by uh, Country Joe and the Fish, the, the line, I believe in God and Senator Dodd and keeping old Castro down. Great line. People remind me of that line all the time. Thank uh-huh. you, David. When you were a young guy at the time, yeah. what did you think when you heard that song? Well, it was sort of amusing. I, t- <laughs> I took some teasing and ribbing by, by, by friends, but uh, 
not much of it. Obviously, it was a fun line, and it was repeated to me quite frequently. It was like an anthem for the anti-war movement. It was, yeah. yeah. You you left the country and went to, you joined the Peace Corps after you graduated from Providence College, right. and you went to the Dominican Republic. Right. Uh, t- tell me about that decision. I mean, was it to, uh, because you didn't want to serve in the war? Or? No. It was 1965 when um, I put the application in. It was June of 66 when I actually went off into the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic. It was gone for over two years, two and a half years. It was a great, it was a life-altering experience for me. Uh, changed you, you, everything. You, you learned, to, you're fluent in Spanish, and you became, an ex, uh, over time, an expert on Latin America. Well, it, it, it was so little interest when I joined the Senate in 1981 um, there, there was very little interest in Latin America. Um, people were concerned with obvious, uh, obvious uh, reason the, the Soviet Union, arms control issues. But the, my experience in Latin America, when I left the Peace Corps, I hitchhiked all through South America before coming back. And interesting, my family, my brother Tom uh, was the ambassador ultimately in Costa Rica and Uruguay, taught Latin America and diplomatic history at Georgetown. Two of my sisters actually studied in Mexico. One of my brothers did. My mother learned to speak Spanish. Uh, as an adult, uh, not because we all thought about it necessarily, but just from coincidence uh, standpoints, we all became in, in, involved in it. I want, I want to, uh, I, when, when we advance the story here and we get to your congressional yeah. service, I want to talk to you about that because we obviously are living in a freighted time relative to our relationship with uh, Latin America. And I, right. want, I want to, so let's put a pin in that for a second because yeah. I, I just, your dad, his tenure in the Senate finished in an unhappy it way. Did, yeah. He became subject of an ethics investigation right. relative to use of campaign funds mm-hmm. and and so on. Uh, you were away for much of that time. Right. Uh, it was, and it was probably, uh, from a personal standpoint, better off. My siblings had a much rougher time being here every day when the stories would appear. It's a huge national story. Yeah, and, and it... Uh, Ultimately, my parents both died very quickly thereafter. My father, six months after the last election. My mother, about a year later. And you think that that no question about that, that, it, that, the, that oh, yeah. the 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 sort of pain of the whole ordeal it was very very rough on them and uh, uh, and painful. Having you know dedicated his life to public service pretty much since the time he uh, finished college, uh, and at this point in his early sixties. Um, and uh, it was it was hard. Um, he was censured by the Senate. And it was nearly uh, ninety-two to five. Yeah, no, it was uh, ironically the things he was censured for to, were actually legal at the time. They no longer are in the question. And made and a defense converting campaign contributions for personal. That use was the charge, yeah, uh, along the way. But anyway, the point is it it left its uh, scars. And uh, you, he he ran for re-election. Nonetheless. He did as an independent. Why did he? Well, he lost the primary. Is that right? He lost the primary and to uh, Joe Duffy. Joe I remember Duffy, that. Correct. And uh, and then, uh, but decided to run as an independent. And uh, what? Why did he decide to do that? Well, I think he was personally felt uh, offended by the charges. He thought he was uh, right that it wasn't the the, the the accusations were incorrect, and he wanted to be able to uh, steer, clear the record, I suppose, more than anything else. And uh, and felt he uh, to do that the best way he could do that is by seeking re-election. You managed his campaign. I did in one set of primaries early on, and uh, and again it was a tough experience to go home having having lost uh, in a primary in Stanford, one of the cities. It wasn't the whole race. I see. Yeah, I was started law school uh, that summer, and um, and then started shortly thereafter in the National Guard, the U.S. Reserves, Army Reserves. You know, I, I'm wondering, four years later, you ran for Congress. You're, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, your dad passed away, you know, right. five or six months after six months he after lost his election. Yeah. Uh, election. Um, and he told someone, I'm not going to live very long uh, after that, or at least I read that yeah. somewhere. Well, uh, you know, we used to tease at home that he would say that with some frequency after many years earlier, in fact. But... Uh, no, I think he was really, this was a devastating blow to him. Uh, had this very distinguished career, made significant contributions, uh, and have it come to this was very, very painful. So you made the decision, uh, four years later, you ran for, for Congress. And I'm wondering um, what, you, what went through your head at that time, because 
it was such a it was such a difficult uh, close to your father's career, and you know it could go one of two ways. One is you can say I was inspired by his life of public service. I was exposed to it. I wanted to do it mm-hmm. as well. Or you could walk away and say I don't want to be part of this process because it's it can be brutal and it can be heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget David. Uh, very shortly before he died, he died in May of 1971. And I remember sitting in the house, and I can tell you the reporter's name, Sue Nichols of the New Haven Register, was interviewing my father. And one of the questions she asked towards the end of the interview was, had you known at the outset in 1933, when you began a public life, that your career might end on this note, uh, would you do it again? Whatever I was reading, I put down, I thought, that's an interesting question. I wonder how he'll answer that. And I'll never forget how quickly he did. He said, I'd do it again in a minute. He said, there's no other calling in life where you can make as much of a difference for as many people as you can through public service. And I thought to myself, that's pretty good. <laughs> this guy has every reason to be bitter and angry about what's happened to him. And he looks back without hesitation and says he'd do it again in a minute. Uh, that was enough of an inspiration. Uh, and I've never forgotten the conversation, never forgotten the name of the reporter and where exactly occurred. You So you decided to run in, ni- in 74. It was the Watergate year. Right. Right. Uh, and um, really a historic year uh, of change. It wasn't a slam dunk for you in that. No, we had a, an interesting, I got into a little late, got into the race um, in 19, uh, in April, I think it was around March or April of 1974. I really had a lot of reluctance about doing it. I just started with a law firm in Connecticut uh, and, and uh, I probably wouldn't have run. There was a Republican member of Congress from the district, Bob Steele, who could have served the next 50 years in that district. He was very well liked, um, decided to run for governor that year against Ella Grasso. And in 1974, Ella Grasso became the first woman elected in her own right as a governor in the United States. Bob Steele lost to her overwhelmingly. So the fact that he was going to run and leave this seat opened it up. And I got involved in it. John M. Bailey Jr., my good friend Jack Bailey, who I'd known all my life, was a candidate. And Doug Bennett, Michael Bennett's father. He was father. The, uh, the son of a uh, prominent politician. Oh, in fact, he was one of the four or five people that orchestrated Jack Kennedy's presidential race. Uh, yeah. And state party chairman in Connecticut, even in those days, 1974. And who's and, the and third And Doug King? Bennett, uh, Michael Bennett's father. Oh, uh, yes, Senator Michael Bennett's Bennett, father. now Senate, yeah, senator from Colorado. Yeah, a great Colorado. friend of mine, terrific friend. And his father became a great friend as well. We ran against each other, three of us. There were 60 towns in eastern Connecticut, the 2nd Congressional District. We actually debated 60 times in every town. On some evenings, the three of us outnumbered the audience by two <laughs> uh, in a Grange Hall or an old uh, town hall. And uh, Doug was a tremendously talented. Um, went on to become the president of Wesleyan, but before that was the first staff director of the Senate Budget Committee. Worked for Ed Muskie, Tom Eagleton, Abe Ribicoff, ran AID, the Roosevelt Foundation, NPR, uh, and at Wesleyan for about 20, 25 years. Passed away just a few months ago. And, uh, and uh, I admired Doug immensely. I mean, he knew so much more than I did uh, running. My slogan in 1974 at age 29 was, Chris Dodd listens. Not a bad <laughs> slogan, but I, little, I knew so little at the time. It was a good thing that I was a listener, not a talker, I suppose. Anyway, yeah. There's a, you know, there's a parody. I don't know if you ever heard this parody radio ad. And it starts with a guy and the phone rings. He says, hello. And the, for like 55 seconds, it's a guy saying, yeah. Uh huh. Right, right. And then at the end, the announcer comes on and says, Joe Smith, he listens. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that was my, my slogan. And, uh, and I, the, the nomination process was in July of 1974 in an old cattle dairy barn, which was the, um, uh, the, one of those meeting places in, in Thompson, Connecticut. And I won the nomination. And uh, there was an opportunity for Doug to primary me. He had enough votes in those days, the structure was. But uh, decided against it uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, of course, Richard Nixon resigned in August uh, uh, that year. And uh, 75 of us were elected in November. I can't, it's hard to even remember many of the events between August uh, and November that year. It was such yeah. an overwhelming year. So you came to Congress with this Watergate class. Yeah. How, did, how did that change the Congress? Well, it's interesting you raise that, David, because I think in a sense, while that was both numerical and, and there was a generational yeah. and educational shift in many ways, and not on, we may not have the numerical switch, at least in those numbers, uh, 
uh, you'll know the answer to that question why, why people listen to this, but we're talking the day before the election. And, and um, but, but what will happen, the change was phenomenal. Most of us who were elected that year had never served in public life. <laughs> uh, we're well-educated. Uh, uh, that is, we're prior to, say, a, an earlier generation that didn't have those opportunities. Um, we were activists. Uh, Toby Moffat, my colleague from Connecticut, worked for Ralph Nader. There's a long list of people who've been, uh, their, their political uh, upbringing was th through activism, anti-war movement, civil rights movement uh, uh, coming up. So it was, a, it was more than just a numerical shift. It was a, a, a group that were, whose political teeth were cut in the anti-war movement, in the civil rights movement, uh, who were determined, again, to bring progressive politics to, uh, to the House of Representatives. And there is a parallel between uh, then and today, because you see a lot of candidates who came forward after 2016 who had right. never run for office before. Right, exactly. And uh, as, as we don't know what the outcome will be, but it's a, almost a certainty that uh, a bunch of them are going to get elected. Well, you have here, I mentioned to you, we had, we had uh, education, um, as a, an experience is, is a difference. And this time around, it's gender. You've got 272 women running for Congress, 215 people running who have, of color are running. Uh, nothing like this. You have gender, you have age, uh, you have education and race. <laughs> those, are, those are huge changes. So whatever else happens tomorrow, that much is true. You're going to have a very different look to the Congress. When we were elected, one of the first things we did in 1975 was go after committee chairmen who'd been around a long time. Many of them actually were progressives in their day. <laughs> uh, and by 1975, they'd been there for 30 years or so. And, uh, and so their politics looked different than it did in 1940s when they had first run as progressives in their own, in their own time and era. In a sense, you're getting that today as well. The changes that are occurring are reflecting the changes in the country. You know, on this question of leadership, uh, there is a, n a number of these candidates ran pledging not to vote for Nancy Pelosi mm -hmm. uh, for speaker. I mean, do you anticipate this same sort of uh, challenge to leadership that you guys engaged in? Well, it seems pretty focused on, on Nancy. I, I, maybe there's other, I'm not following each of these races, whether or not they're talking about the fact well, she, is, she's become such a target for Republicans, and she's become, in the view of these candidates, a liability. And uh, it, the, the rite of passage for them has been to declare that they wouldn't. Yeah, although I would, I would say that any Democratic leader of the House would be subjected to the same. Yeah, but I, she's I, been here a long time, which, a long so time. She, is, she has bears a lot of scars of it. And I speak as someone who worked with her, as you've worked yeah. with her. Well, I've known her. She and my sister were roommates in college. Oh, is that right? I've known Nancy since she was 18 years old. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, first of all, she's an awesome supporter of Democrats. Uh, I don't know of anyone that's come remotely close right. to raising the kind of resources that yeah. a lot of struggling, particularly women, yes. who struggle raising money. They never would have been able to raise anywhere near the finances to run. And, and she represents a, a, a modest view of the progressive wing of the, of the Democratic Party. And so I understand people in other places who are facing huge uphill battles, uh, given the registration levels in their states. But, but I, I, I'm, first of all, I believe, Nancy, if, if Democrats win tomorrow, the House, I have no doubt in my mind that she'll be chosen and elected as the Speaker of the House. And that will be by an overwhelming majority of Democrats who will support her. Well, you're out on a limb now. I am now. Yes. It's, it's on. <laughs> I presume it's, you might edit this, though, for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no promises. Uh, no promises on that. Yeah. You, didn't, uh, you didn't serve very long in the House. Six you, years. You, you were there for six years. Tell me if it's unfair to suggest this, but uh, they were made, made more a learning process for you than um, than the most productive part of your career. Well, first of all, you're junior. I mean, I'm sitting in, in the, the very in, back of the row, so right. in the house, it's uh, it's awfully hard to you know to make a mark in that sense legislatively uh, along the way. I had some things I'm very proud. I was very involved in the. In the leadership race, I was one of the co-managers of Dick Bowling's campaign to become the majority leader of one of the most contested races between Jim Wright, Phil Burton, and, and, uh, and Dick Bowling. 
was put on the Rules Committee by Speaker O'Neill in my second term, which was almost unheard of in those days. Uh, part of his inner cabinet, the Speaker's cabinet, as the Rules Committee is, is involved. I was paying attention to my, my district. Uh, they'd had a very popular Republican congressman uh, for a number of years. I've mentioned earlier to you, Bob Steele. And so getting back home and... and uh, Were you concerned about holding the seat? I mean, was it competitive? It, I did. Actually, I did better in the, in the following two elections than I did in the easier election, uh, arguably, in the 70 Watergate uh, class. Yeah. My numbers went up about eight or ten points in each race in 76 and 78. Uh, so I was paying attention to that. Uh, I had no idea that Abe Ribicoff was going to retire in 1980. 1980. Senator Ribicoff, right. he was a colleague of your, of your dad's. Right, correct. And, uh, uh, did... How much did it mean? You ran in 1980 just to turn the page on the story, right. and you got elected to the Senate. You got elected to the Senate in the midst of another landslide, except this landslide was rolling against Democrats. Correct. Ronald Reagan ran in, in 1980. Uh, Sixteen Republicans uh, were elected to the Senate. Uh, all, uh, you know, a whole host of iconic figures on in the Democratic side of the Senate were defeated, McGovern and Hart, I believe, and Church and, you know, just iconic names. Uh, and only two Democrats won. What was it like to come into the Senate uh, under those circumstances? Well, I mean, being flooded with resumes uh, because you had the President Carter lost as well. So you had the White House staff. And as you point out, a lot of people from the from the Democratic side of the aisle who lost their seats. And so I had literally an overwhelming amount of people uh, applying for jobs. <laughs> the first time, I remember the first memory. Probably, uh, probably helpful in terms of getting a good staff. Did, but it was always difficult uh, uh, going through it, making good choices and mm -hmm. good decisions. Rosa DeLauro, the congresswoman from Connecticut uh, today, after 24 years, was my campaign manager in that race, as she was in the coming races. She was my chief of staff. I brought her to Washington. She was one of, I think, one or two women uh, who were actually chiefs of staff in Senate offices. There were no women in the Senate. Uh, Barbara Mikulski came a few years later along the way. Uh, so it was overwhelming in a sense. I was the most junior member of the place in the minority. Um, and it leaves you kind of sitting back, uh, to put it mildly. But also there are opportunities. Uh, some of the most productive years in many ways, not because I authored major legislation, but I was able to get a lot done because you don't have the kind of overbearing committee chairman who want to make sure everybody toes the line. Right. And being in the minority. And it's different than the House. You've very been, different in yeah. the House. I'll never forget, uh, David, one, one occasion there was going to be a hearing involving the uh, director of the CIA, the head of the FBI, uh, I forget who from the State Department and others coming to testify about about dealing with Iran and, uh, and uh, reapportionment of some of resources in some way. Well, I thought, well, that ought to be interesting. I'll, I'll go over to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which I was put on, by the way, because I had no choice of committee assignments. But I, I brought along a bunch of mail to kind of read and listen to the conversation. I walked into the Senate Foreign Relations Committee room, and the clerk turned to me and said, Senator, would you take over the hearing? No one else has shown up. Now, in the <laughs> House, I would have waited three days before I got a chance to say anything. <laughs> but in the Senate, now, they quickly showed up. Other people did. But I had to begin the hearing with this very distinguished group of witnesses before the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Let me ask you uh, a question. How much, given the way your father's career ended, how much did it mean to you to walk back into that chamber uh, 10 years later yeah. as a United States senator? Well, you know, I always said during the campaigns, uh, you know, I love my father, but I'm not my, 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 my father's son, but not my father. I had a very different view of the Vietnam conflict. I mean, there were a number of issues which would have been very different than my father's on choice questions and the like, for instance. Yeah. Um, although he wasn't unique in his generation of growing up with those, those views. And so there was certainly the emotional moment. My, my older siblings gave me my father's Senate chair, which I used for the next 30 years. I sat at my father's desk, the desk that he last sat in in the Senate. So there were those ties. I don't, didn't tell many people about that. It's just something I did uh, mm -hmm. along the way. And I'll never forget that um, Dan Inouye, Senator Inouye from Hawaii, and Russell Long uh, came down and greeted me. They were great pals of my father's, great friends. Uh, so I was serving with people that my father had served with in many cases. And to that extent, there was an emotional connection. Uh, but I understood pretty quickly that my success in that institution was going to depend on what I did. And it didn't bring a lot of emotional luggage uh, to the 
conversations and debates and so forth. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who were the sons of, yeah. and uh, which is not uncommon in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my sense and is, daughters. it's always a it's it's an advantage and daughters. It's an advantage. Well, Nancy Pelosi is an example of it. Yeah. The daughter of the mayor of Baltimore. Right. It's an advantage, uh, but it's there's also. Uh, it's it's a strange uh, burden. Well, it's a, it's a great observation. I, in fact, I've looked at it. You might not suspect I'm curious about historically a rather significant number of, of children, of members, but also significant number of people who haven't been elected. Hubert Humphrey was as popular a political figure in Minnesota as you could think of. Skip Humphrey, who was a wonderful friend and a good yeah, person. He was a state attorney general, yeah. tried to get elected. No, couldn't as well. Yeah. Uh, George Smathers in Florida, I can think of any number of cases. And it's very healthy. People have a very, very strong sense of opposition to any notion of primogenitor, that you have a right somehow to the seat because you're one of your parents or grandparents uh, were elected to office. You really need to understand that once they think you're your own person and you're not trying to cash in on that relationship, and no one could actually accuse me of that in 1974 or 1980, mm-hmm. given the history you pointed out right. with my father in the past in the state of Connecticut and elsewhere. Um, so the, I, I, given I, that history, did, did you feel like you that you vindicated him? Not really. I mean, in a sense, uh, I, uh, I remember Howard Metzenbaum came to me one day years later. Now, moving fast, very much further beyond 1980, he came to me on the floor of the Senate one day, and he said, "I just read the the committee hearings on your father's case." He said, "I'd like to offer a resolution to exonerate him." It was an outrage what happened to him. The hypocrisy and so forth was stunning. And I said, you know, Howard, you're wonderful, and I appreciate you mentioning that. But, but I'm my father's son. I'm not him. I'm here. <laughs> I don't want to. There's no reason to go back over that history, in my view. And, um, and so there was a, a sense, obviously, being aware of all of it, David. But, but my success was going to be determined by what I did, what my issues, much as his were, <laughs> mm-hmm. in many ways, in his well, time. Let's, let's talk about that, because I think there is a bit of a connection. It was ironic uh, that he was this virulent anti-communist, and you uh, really uh, pushed back on the Reagan administration policy in Latin America. Uh, uh, you know the, their their war on the, right. the Contras, and uh, so on. Uh, why did you why did you take that position? Well, it wasn't any difference in my uh, certainly opposition to dictatorships and denial of basic freedoms to people. I didn't retreat at all from that. I just thought the approach that, that my father's generation took after World War II and Korea and so forth, that military force was going to be the best way to deal with this threat. Uh, I felt there were much better ways to deal with it. Uh, the Peace Corps Service, for instance, did an awful lot for countries and people to learn who Americans were uh, in ways that they would not have learned had we sent in the Marines in every single case. Uh, uh, so I, I, my approach was not different at all. I remember having a conversation with the Reagan administration, of course, was spent an awful lot of time on the Central American conflicts. Uh, and there was a meeting at the White House, in fact, with uh, President Reagan and Colin Powell was in the room, Vice President Bush was, and a whole group of people. And we were asked if anyone of us had to make any comments. I was a very junior member of the Senate. I didn't think it was my place to be making comments. And everyone else had some thoughts. And finally, the meeting's about to break up. And President Reagan turned to me and he said, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share? I thought, well, do, I, do I speak up at this moment or not? But I did. And I said, Mr. President, there's no disagreement on the goals here. The question is, how do we achieve those goals? And I happen to believe if we handle this differently, Marxism and communism will fade. We can defeat it. Uh, it isn't going to be through military force so we can make those gains. Uh, and that's why I have a different point of view. Later that day, I was back in the office, and I got a call from Howard Baker. Uh, Howard said, i got to tell you what happened in the meeting. He said, after the meeting was over and all you Democrats had left, they are discussing the, the, what happened in the conversation. And the president turned. He said, you know, that guy Dodd seemed to make a lot of sense. And everyone else said, don't, Mr. President, don't listen to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Great phone call. Howard Baker was very generous. <laughs> put it in the context of today, mm-hmm. uh, because the president uh, – I think in service of this midterm election as much as, as anything has pumped up the, uh, the, the threat represented uh, by these, uh, these migrants, uh, yeah. the caravan, uh, and uh, even threatened to cut off, uh, cut off aid to Honduras and, yeah. and uh, the other countries involved because 
to, to try and encourage them to keep people from uh, from fleeing. And I'm I'm wondering, as you look at this, what your what your reaction to it is and what your answer would be. Well, you have to say, and I, there's no debate about this. Obviously, we can't accept everyone that would like to come here. You've got to maintain your borders and keep them secure. But, but, but the motivations, what are these people, the over, overwhelming majority, are trying to do? They're leaving terror in their own countries, no economic future what, whatsoever for them. I suspect that most Americans in a similar position would try to do something to protect their families. <laughs> and that seems to be what the overwhelming numbers are. Now, we can't take them all in, obviously. Uh, no country could uh, do that day in and day out, although many countries around the world are. What the Jordanians are doing, for instance, in the Middle East, there are a million refugees from Syria in a small country. Uh, the King Hussein and others have been able to take, take care of. Well, these but issues of migration have been Huge, very, and they're uh, going to get only larger difficult. with the changing yeah. climate change issues and access to food and water. Are going to be overwhelming. So again, I think cooperation uh, here, uh, these Central American countries have got to do a far better job of, of maintaining and managing their own opportunities than they have been. Certainly Mexico needs to assume and share some of this responsibility as these people pour through their country on the way to our border. So I don't minimize the importance of the issue, but the motivations that are causing people to pack up and carry their children 2,000 miles walking the distance uh, certainly motivates me to, to think differently about this than someone who wants to overthrow a government someplace. And so talking about a military response to a human tragedy, uh, I think is so far off base what it ought to be, so harmful to us as a country and our relationships, not just within this region, but globally. Do you think it's real? Do you think, I mean, he obviously sent the troops down there, apparently at a cost of 100 to $200 million. Right. But do you think that the gesture was made to deal with the threat, or was the gesture made to deal with the threat of Democrats in the midterm election? Well, probably both. I mean, certainly we talked earlier about the power of immigration. We've seen it in the Brexit vote, mm -hmm. uh, watching it in Germany with uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, probably suffered more as a result of her willingness to allow some refugees to come into Germany uh, at a time a few years ago, paying that price. You see it in Italy. Mm -hmm. Spain is the one exception in the European Union that seems to be willing to accept people coming in uh, under certain circumstances, not wholesale acceptance. So it's not a, we're, not, we're not an uncommon place here today. So clearly part of it is great politics uh, to do it. And the president, since the days he started his campaign, yeah, talking about Mexicans yeah. and who they right. were and what they wanted and building walls and so forth. So it resonates with people. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, but that's all it does. It doesn't do anything in a constructive way to give us more security, protect our borders, minimize the kind of problems that these people are facing and causing them to pack up their lifely, lifelong belongings and walk yeah. uh, 2,000 miles to our border. Let me ask you, 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 you're, you had a famous friendship with Ted Kennedy. Yeah. Um, sometimes a raucous friendship. We don't have to get into the details of that. But uh, I won't comment on that. Go ahead. <laughs> but um, but tell me about him, and uh, you know, and and your your friendship, but also the role that he played in the Senate and his evolution as a senator. Well, he, he was remarkable, and, and you've heard this from others. It wouldn't just be from me. He was a great friend. Um, people ask me with some frequency what he was like as a as a person, and a lot of people knew him uh, very very well. I'll never forget, I had a high school friend of mine, a very close friend who died, and I was giving the eulogy uh, at his funeral service uh, outside the city here. And I remember it right in the middle of the eulogy, I looked in the back of the room, the very last pew sitting back there was Ted Kennedy. <laughs> and after the service, I went up to him and I said, what, what are you doing here? And I'll never forget, he said to me, well, he was a friend of yours. Now, we've all had great friendships in our lives, but how many people do we know that would attend the funeral? <laughs> of a friend of someone they hardly knew, um, in a way. And that's what he was. He was remarkable in that sense. He cared deeply and passionately about the things he was involved in. Uh, comparison to a lot of people we see today, you wonder what their motivations are. His were deeply felt. I was with him on many occasions when there was not another human being within miles. And he would, he would speak as if there was a, uh, about it with such passion and voice about health care, about what was going on in terms of education. You get on that long list, things he dedicated his public life to. Uh, he wasn't without his flaws and faults, uh, but the, at the center of it all uh, was a great, compassionate, passionate 
person believing in the rights of individuals and people. And, uh, and uh, again, he was highly uh, beloved by his colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, uh, during his service, even with people. Yeah, who totally well, partly because of the things that you said. You know, Joe Biden told me that uh, after he had had uh, he, he had a cerebral uh, right. hemorrhage or, or, or uh, some such challenge in the late 80s that he was really questioning whether he wanted to continue his presidential campaign had come and gone and not gone well and and he was depressed and uh, he was at his home in Delaware and Ted Kennedy showed up with a gym bag and he said what are you doing here and he said well I, I thought I'd, I wanted to have a swim I know you have a pool <laughs> and uh, and he spent the day talking yeah. to him and uh you hear all of these stories, and not just from Democrats. You know, I, I did a, uh, a, a, a television show with John McCain, and he talked lovingly about uh, Ted Kennedy yeah. and uh, their relationship. Is that kind of, is that possible in today's political environment? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's possible, but the political environment doesn't help. And, and, the, and the role of the Senate and how it functions today doesn't help. I mean, people have always said, well, the, the Senate, things worked well. They worked well, in a sense, because the rules mandated we work together. Uh, when you have to get 60 votes to get a major thing done, you're not going to get it done if you don't have a working relationship with others. Um, and, and so the, 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 the time people spent together, certainly growing up and watching at an age when I was the child uh, of a person in public life, uh, People knew each other. Uh, kids went to school together. Well, partly because uh, everybody, uh, senators more frequently lived here lived in here. Washington. Well, you had to. Cause you, you know, when they, it wasn't that long ago, David, that the federal government paid for one round-trip ticket when you got elected to Congress. Your train or plane ticket to get here and the plane or train ticket to get home at the end of the session. The assumption being, and obviously the practicality is mandated, if you came from the far west, you weren't going home every weekend. <laughs> You so you moved there. your family here. You had to be here. Um, so you'd be together in, at, as families are at school events and social events. All of a sudden, that, that, that right-wing conservative David Axelrod and that liberal Democrat Dodd discovered they both like to play golf or their, their, their kids went to the same school together. And you begin to learn that David's a lot more than what ideology or political party he's associated with. Yeah. He also is a good guy. He's easy to be around. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got a wonderful family. And all of a sudden, that relationship deepens. And, and whether it's in politics or business or any setting yeah. I can think of, the more you and know about really a human being. that's really gone you know? because they but don't have gone. that. Well, one, we allow, we, we allow you can go home for a, quote, public purpose six times a day, uh, yeah. and the federal government will pay for it. Um, and so you have, and they're also, you know, we've seen senators lose because, uh, they didn't have deep roots in their own state. Uh, Dick Luger lost, uh, his seat, the Republican Senator from Indiana in part because he was basically living in Washington. But you got to go home. You got to pay attention. I mean, right. there's obviously you can, you can exaggerate it to a point and, uh, today, most people I know and with families here go back every weekend. You want to spend time with your family, have them be in Washington. On weekends, you get home on a Friday and a Saturday. There are parades and picnics mm -hmm. and speeches to give and churches to visit or synagogues on Saturday or Sunday, and you're not going to see your family uh, much of the time. Come down here, you can see your family a lot, <laughs> uh, much more so than you would on a weekend if you go back and work. You lost, uh, and the country lost, Senator Kennedy, mm -hmm. uh, ultimately to cancer. How, how difficult was that for you as close as you were? Well, I can remember the exact day when Vicky called me and told me about his uh, the, it, the brain cancer. His wife, yes. yeah, and uh, uh, got to spend a little bit of time with him uh, during that year. Um, I became the acting chairman of the Senate Labor Committee, mm -hmm. and so I managed uh, through the committee hearings and markups the Affordable Care Act, yes. while simultaneously being chairman, which of the was Senate his Banking lifelong Committee. passion, going back to the days when he watched his own son. Uh, with his own cancer, young Teddy, um, uh, realized that uh, those uh, uh, programs he was in were no longer available because they were working. And all of a sudden, the people he was in that control group with would not be able to afford the medications that he could. And uh, it sort of so, radicalized him in a way on the subject matter. So when you lost him, what, uh, how did that affect you? Well, sort of challenging. I, first of all, you know, one of those things I'm sure families go through. You miss someone a lot. We had a great friendship, a lot of fun uh, together. And, uh, 
he loved history. He loved being around and, and just enjoyable. And he was a, a fun person to be around. He was, and he was uh, great stories and uh, a great sense of humor about about things. He uh, just as a, I mean, we all have friendships like that, and I. I mean, everyone I'm probably listening to this has them, and I don't have to say much more. You know the special ones that come along and why they're special, and this was special. But also, uh, you know, he, he was suffering a lot, and uh, despite the Herculean efforts to save him, I was happy to be able to call him on July 15th, uh, 2009, and announce that we had just marked up the Affordable Care Act on the committee that I was responsible for. Um, uh, I went through uh, a cancer at that time, and... Uh, and he uh, uh, died about uh, three or four weeks later. And uh, but I, the last piece of news I could really give him was that the bill he cared the most about, yeah, the health care bill, that must have pleased yeah. him. Oh, it was over the top. He loved the fact not only we got the bill done, but we beat the other three committees. Everything was a competition. <laughs> <laughs> over your decades in the Congress, mm. you must have uh, you must have met some interesting colleagues uh, who made an impression on you, for good and bad, but yeah. who are the people who stand out in your mind as uh, we've talked about Senator Kennedy? We're talking Kennedy. about Ted Kennedy, who was, uh, uh, again, a great right. pen, but also a great senator, in my view. Right. Um, for, for, by 20, you can choose where you want to sit uh, as you move up in seniority. When I was first elected, I was in the last row in the last seat. I was 100th in the seniority, So, I, but over the years, I, I could move up and make selections. When I had the chance... There was an open seat next to Senator Bob Byrd, um, and, and I made that Virginia, decision yeah. to sit next to him. I did for over 20 years. And that in itself was a Ph.D. Um, and, and just a remarkable individual, most interesting person, I think, uh, th that I served with. His journey, uh, both personally, politically, educationally, was ph phenomenal to yeah. me. I mean, he was a guy who grew up literally in a, a hollow of West Virginia, uh, got a college degree when he was a congressman Still at George play, Washington University. Right to, played his fiddle on the yeah, played on the, the campaign played the fiddle. trail. He would could quote a poetry. He would drive back to West Virginia on weekends, and he would quote poetry to himself, beginning in Washington, without ever reciting the same poem twice uh, until he got to West Virginia. Uh, I remember once I had a poem by Whittier that I was about an old schoolhouse. I've lived in a schoolhouse in Connecticut. And I, and I had that as a note, and he said, that's a great poem, but you're missing the last six stanzas in which he proceeded to quote the last six stanzas. It's amazing. When he was poem. Well, he gave the history of the Roman Senate without a note in front of him. He would read up, wrote the history of the United States Senate in two volumes uh, up until that time. Uh, got a law degree from American University the day that Jack Kennedy gave his great speech on arms control. A, a college degree when he was in the House. Uh, just his, his personal growth, uh, his knowledge of the institution, his deep caring about it. Um, for a kid to come out of Connecticut who grew up in very different circumstances, having the privilege of sitting next to Robert C. Byrd was one of the great uh, opportunities of a lifetime. From the beginning of the financial crisis, you were right in the middle of it because mm -hmm. of the, you were, you were chair of the banking committee. Well, I, I became chair, you know, it's interesting, I teasingly said, uh, when I was put on the, uh, on the, in the, arrived in the Senate, I was given three committee assignments. I was given the Banking Committee, the Foreign Relations Committee, and, and a year or so later, the Labor Committee. What no one bothered to tell me in the process, uh, that Senator Kennedy, Senator Biden, and Senator Sarbanes uh, were the Democrats I'd be sitting next to or close to, and, and that I would have to wait until one or all of them either lost or passed away to move up the food chain uh, in terms of becoming a chairman. And all of a sudden, within a spa very short space of time, Senator Kennedy died, Senator Sarbanes retired, and Senator Biden became vice president. Now I had a choice. I could chair for the first time in 28 years any one of those three committees. Now, I'll just speak candidly with you, David, the committee I enjoyed the most was the Labor Committee. I became the work I did on children's issues, family medical leave, yes. premature births, yeah. infant screening, a long list yeah. of stuff involved. The first child care program since World War II. I mean, things that I really cared deeply about. Foreign relations was interesting. I served in the Peace Corps, cared a lot about Latin America. To chair the committee would have been a great honor. But I saw the biggest problem emerging in 2006 was the financial crisis. The committee that I had the least personal interest in, uh, although I'd served on it for 27 years, uh, Connecticut had a lot of interest in the financial services area. So I chose the committee that had the least personal appeal uh, for me in many ways, but one that I felt was probably the most important in that, in that window, and so um, opted for the, for the banking committee. You, um, you, 
you were the guy who persuaded Democrats to uh, support this the TARP, which was the bailout mm -hmm. of the the banks uh, uh, when the when Lehman Brothers collapsed in two thousand uh, and eight. Uh, that must have been a chore. I well, mean, that was a that was an incredibly unpopular bill. Oh, huge! And it was uh, actually we, the, because the the first, like anything else, the first news about it was about a one-and-a-half page, two-page bill, give me $700 billion, taxpayer. And by the way, no court, no regulator can intervene. Uh, and that's people's first impression of what you call the bailout. <laughs> uh, I partnered with Judge Gregg, my Republican colleague from New Hampshire, and we wrote, along with people like Bob Bennett, there were a lot of people involved in it, but Judge Gregg was, and I were the principals, along with Barney Frank in the House, obviously. We drafted about a 100-page bill that did a lot more than just give me a check. We broke up how many times you had to vote on the money in tranches, gave assistance to victims of foreclosure, provided warrants in the idea that we get this money back and taxpayers ought to benefit from it. We allowed for money to be used for things other than banks, so $85 billion was so used auto, to salvage the auto Chrysler and GM wouldn't be yeah. around today. So we, we, it made it a much different bill that people voted on than what was submitted to us originally by the administration. One of the complaints you hear, and I hear it, yeah. having been in the administration, was that the, the, the people who were responsible in the industry were able to uh, escape without, without real punishment, right. some of them leaving with significant golden parachutes mm -hmm. and so on. Legitimate legitimate complaint? Well, I think so. I mean, I, again, our job in the banking committee, we don't have any jurisdiction over criminality, <laughs> in a sense. That was up to other committees. And it can't, you can't arrest someone for a crime that didn't exist. Uh, part of the problem was the laws were so opaque and, and non-existent. I mean, uh, there were a lot of reasons why the crisis occurred. Uh, one of them was, obviously, the, the, the economic model that once people have a mortgage, they'll drop everything else and pay that before anything else. That didn't hold up to be true. And we deregulated an awful lot uh, under the previous administration, under the Bush administration as well. Uh, and there was no, almost no supervision of banks whatsoever. Um, and so a lot the of people- tools weren't there. Yeah, and so a lot of people should have paid an awful price for it, but, but you can't pay a price for a law that doesn't exist. Uh, right, uh, and so you guys sought to create new, a new architecture, right. new rules. Uh, Dodd-Frank mm -hmm. became synonymous with that. That was the bill, and right. it became synonymous with the uh, regulation of banks' requirements that they keep more capital yep. and so on, and uh, uh, some regimen for how one dismantles a, uh, right. an institution so resolution. it doesn't take the whole yeah. system down. Now the administration is um, is is trying to undo uh, some of what you've done. Yeah. Um, what's, what are, what's your level of concern about that? Well, less so than I was initially. And in with this new administration, the Trump administration, they, they were actually talking about repealing the legislation and the like. They never went that far. In fact, all of the basic principles that you've just described, and there are more of them, are still very much intact. Uh, Mike Crapo, the Republican chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, uh, I, I voted. I would have voted against the bill that he put together in a bipartisan basis, by the way. Um, but I respect the fact that it, he did not take a wholesale swing at the legislation. The Consumer Protection Bureau is alive and well, uh, although the president although under the leadership is terrible. Of, of folks who but, but they didn't destroy it. it. They didn't yeah. destroy it because I wrote it in such a way they couldn't. Had we written it in a different way, where it depended upon the appropriation process for funding other than the Federal Reserve funds to keep it alive, it would be gone, de facto gone today in my view. But along with the funeral plans, the orderly resolution of, of, of failed institutions, uh, the transparency on highly sophisticated arcane instruments uh, in the derivatives area and so forth, all are existing today. What changed was the threshold for heightened supervision. Uh, we set it at $50 billion. There are 6,000 banks in the country, David. There are 111 This goes of them. to the too-big-to-fail question. Yeah, because people don't understand. With almost 6,000 banks, of 6,000, there are 111 banks that have combined assets of more than $10 billion. The overwhelming majority of banks have assets fewer than that. Community banks supported our bill. Never could have passed it without the community banks supporting what we were doing. So they let the threshold. We had $50 billion in the bill. 
and moved it. Uh, it should have been moved. Banks up. that had assets of fifty assets million of 50 or million. more would be right. Now they've gone it up to two fifty. Now that you know, there are only a handful of banks that have assets in excess of two hundred fifty billion dollars. They went way beyond what they should have done. My view it could have gone up to a hundred billion, and that would have been so. Fine. There are banks that are that are. Uh, Big that are no longer considered too big to fail. That's that right. could have a real have impact on the to system. Supervision, yeah. Which is, but the Federal Reserve. Uh, I don't want to ruin his career, but but Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, is a terrific leader. <laughs> uh, this may scare. President had Powell. some. Unkind well, I know, words but that ought to heighten his respect for him. He's, he has <laughs> maintained at the Federal Reserve level, the heightened supervision from banks at 100 to 150 up to 250. So the, 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 there's still oversight. The heightened supervision exists through the Federal Reserve System. We lost it from what we provi provided in the bill, but the Federal Reserve maintains that jurisdiction. So it isn't quite as bad as it could have been. And, and again, let me quickly say to you, I didn't, as I said, I didn't write the Ten Commandments. I wrote a bill, uh, and there are things in the bill that I wasn't overly enthusiastic about. Uh, and, and so I had to get 60 votes, couldn't lose one. And clearly, there are always unintended consequences. There are things That's we didn't think about. That's certainly true on the Affordable Care Act as sure, well. Sure, absolutely. Because there's efforts. Obviously, you, we all watch the efforts to dismantle that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we've got to be careful. Again, if we were dealing with responsible folks who wanted to fix some things that need fixing, it would be a very different debate and conversation. I'd never have suggested, not once, nor has Barney Frank, that what we wrote in that bill ought to remain and grant it as if it were the Ten Amendments of the Constitution. Ten Commandments, yeah. yeah. The Ten Commandments or Ten oh, Amendments. Oh, the Ten Amendments of the one, Constitution, yeah. yes. So ideas that will make this work better, and it's working very well. The banks today are enjoying a profitability, historic levels of profitability. Lending is at record levels as well. All the fears that were mentioned, profitability would be gone, lending would dry up, have turned out to be absolutely false. In fact, our banks today are stronger, more highly regarded and respected, I was speaking with uh, the head of the IMF recently at a, at a function, and she said, U.S. banks are the envy of the world today. <laughs> uh, and, and she wasn't making a political well, statement. Well, in fact, if Europe had gotten to regulation re uh, uh, sooner, yeah. Yeah. they would have emerged more quickly, yeah. I, I suspect, no from, the, uh, from the it, recession. It, so you went on you uh, to head the Motion Picture Association. Right. Uh, now you're... Are you technically a lobbyist that you're at? No, Arnold I'm Porter? at the law firm Arnold and Porter. Yeah. I'm a senior counselor uh, mm -hmm. and a great firm, great reputation. In fact, uh, Abe Fortas, who started the firm, and my father were classmates in 1933 from Yale Law School. And uh, Arnold and Porter came down, as my father did, part of the New Deal. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, built a great uh, practice. And um, they uh, asked me to join them when I left the Senate. And uh, the offer came along as well simultaneously to head up the Motion Picture Association. It seemed like a, a fun thing to do. People have often asked, what were the corollaries that I learned between the motion picture industry and politics? And I said, well, I left one group of bad actors for another group of bad, <laughs> act bad actors. And then uh, when that, after seven years, uh, a lot of traveling, Arnold and Porter came back. And a uh, great group of people. They respect public service, members there, have great pro bono practice, and good lawyers. So I'm honored to be a part of it. The reason I ask you this is um, one of the things that always struck me, and I worked with you in 2006 on mm -hmm. your re-election yeah. campaign, uh, was just how much you seem to enjoy the process, public service. Mm -hmm. uh, and my, 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 I guess two questions are, how much do you miss it? And how much do you worry about the institution that you left behind, the Senate, the Congress, and it's ability to repair the breach here. Yeah. Well, there, there are aspects of it I miss, uh, obviously. I, I, just I should preface it by saying I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed my 36 years representing the state of Connecticut in the Congress of the United States. Uh, without exception, I love the puzzle of it, putting pieces of legislation together, working with colleagues, regardless of party and ideology. When I left the Senate, two people spoke at my, my going away party, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. Uh, uh, again, and I don't agree with Mitch on much, but we managed to have a great friendship. I took my vacations with John Warner, uh, Republican senator from Virginia. I mean, it was a different place. So I miss that notion, wondering why it doesn't work as well uh, along the way. Uh, and, and so that will always uh, be the case. But I do worry about the institution. I think they made a dreadful mistake to eliminate the filibuster on lifetime appointments 
in the mm -hmm. Senate. What's unique about the Senate was you mean that to the courts and to the court, yeah, to the district courts, the appellate courts, and now the Supreme Court. These are life, 30, 40 year people. I don't have any objection to lifting a filibuster on, on ambassadors or mm -hmm. cabinet members and so forth. That shouldn't tie up the place forever. But on lifetime appointments, it should. And on substantive legislation, it should. To It'd force some sort of that's, meeting of the mind. That's what's unique about the place. If you eliminate that, why have a bicameral system? Why not just have the House of Representatives? Mm -hmm. Simple majority rules, in a sense. The founders wanted a combination. The House would be where people were popularly elected, as they should be. The Senate was going to be someplace where, again, you thought twice about what you're doing to make sure that you weren't going to be making mistakes that would have an adverse effect on the country. And we're not, this is not the first time. The Senate and the Congress isn't a clear trajectory, one way or the other, up or down. It's more like a roller coaster ride, historically. And we're at a low point right now. But I hear the efforts being made today uh, by people, Democrats and Republicans, to get back on track again. Each generation has had to sort out and figure out how it functions with new technology. I'm sure the telegraph, the telephone, the television, <laughs> the radio, all of these things caused the institution to go through periods of anxiety and wonder whether or not they would be able to handle these new technologies. Today we're starting to begin to sort out these new technologies and how we function in them. But I have a lot of confidence in this country. I have tremendous confidence in people in the country. Unlike many nations, our people are strong. <laughs> Uh, they have strong values, uh, and when given proper leadership, they end up doing the right thing. And so I'm very optimistic about the future, even though we're going through it. What, in my view, is a very, a very sad point right now in our history. I think we'll come out of it. Well, I'd be a fool not to end on that note. Yeah, you thanks. Know. Enjoy yeah, it, Everybody's David. hungry for optimism. Well, I'm, I'm a believer in it, I, uh, and I love doing it. I love the work. Uh, I, love not I love the substantive work, and, and I've always done, if you don't have an appetite or an aptitude for this, why do you do it? Uh, it it's, it's exhausting Maybe. in many ways, but it's so rewarding um, to, uh, to be involved. I think people do in, it sometimes because yeah. you become an instant celebrity. Well, that, it's, yeah, maybe people, they see that. They see the desk. They see the room they could serve in. And they don't know that, that campaigning and governing are, are synergistic. They're not separate events. Uh, how people campaign and how they govern, there's a, there's a correlation. Uh, you know, I think we're making a mistake today, the efficiencies of campaigning. When you go door to door on Elm Street today, technicians will people tell you, you only have to knock on three doors. Because yes. the other doors, we know yeah. they're going to vote for you against right. you. What you miss is having that screen door slammed in your face by someone who's furious with how things are running in the country. You remember that. <laughs> Yeah. And when you're governing, you need to remember there are people who don't agree with you, have very different ideas. And if you don't have to ever listen to those folks, then you never really understand the pain, the frustration, the anxiety they're feeling. So th those campaigns take a longer time. They're inefficient in many ways. But you're a much better representative of people if you've listened and been forced to listen to their concerns. And today I worry that we're becoming so efficient in the process that people don't have to listen enough. Okay, so we won't necessarily end on an optimistic note, yeah. but uh, great to be with you. Thanks for starting. Much enjoyed. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.